Welcome to How StoryWorks Conversations from Chipperish Media. I'm concept developer, Dr. Kelly Jones. And I'm story expert, Lonnie Diane Rich. We are breaking up How StoryWorks into four seasons following four topics, character, conflict, structure, and magic. This is season one, character. Today, we're talking about building character, how to get started with the single most important element in storytelling. Story is power, and we don't leave power on the table. So let's get to work. All right. So in our first How Story Works conversation, we defined our terms and yes. introduced the new format for the show. But we didn't really introduce ourselves <laughs> and <laughs> or our areas of expertise. So let's do that now. Lonnie Dinerich, how did you come to be a story expert? <laughs> you know, funny you should ask. Um, well, I sold a book, like I wrote a book in NaNoWriMo in 2002, and then I sold it like six months later in 2003, and I got a two-book deal. And I was like, that's great. I don't know how to write a story. Like, I did this. I made it up. I did a thing. I wrote it, and apparently it was good, and it just got me on this path, and I didn't know how to write the next one. I didn't know like how stories worked. I just knew that I, I liked them and I wrote them and I was obsessed with them and all that kind of stuff. And so that started me down a rabbit hole mm-hmm. <laughs> that I have not yet come out from. Um, so, you know, uh, another 11 published books later, I uh, was still figuring it out. I've been teaching it online, you know, for a few years. Then I went, I moved back to Syracuse and I started teaching screenwriting at the Newhouse School. And as I was pulling all of this knowledge together and trying to figure it out, I developed this theory that I would then bring in and teach my college students. And let me tell you, if anything's going to like break a theory, it's going to be a college sophomore, you know? Yep. But yet I would, I would come in, I would teach them this stuff. And by the end of the semester, they could write a competent story, you know, 15 page short story, short film. And um, so I knew that it was working. And then basically every semester, I would work on it a little more. Meanwhile, I was podcasting about various stories and using the um, analysis on those stories. It started with, um, I think, Popcorn Dialogues with Jennifer Cruzy when we did a survey of romantic comedies was where that kind of started, you know. And then I moved into doing it with other stories, with Buffy the Vampire Slayer, Outlander. Um, did we did Angel? You and I did Angel, um, and then there's the Marvel Cinematic Universe uh, stuff that I've been working on with Joshua Unruh and Listen Up A Holes, um, another Chipperish Media podcast. Mm-hmm. Um, and so basically, for the last I don't know, let me see, 2003, so 17 years. Is that 17 years? That's 17 years. <laughs> 17 Holy years. Shit. So for the last 17 years, I have been basically nonstop studying stories and teaching and analyzing and doing all this stuff. So that's kind of, I guess, how I became a story expert. Yeah. <laughs> it yeah. just sort of happened, you know, kind of uh-huh. like how you just happened to get pregnant. I just happened to become a story expert, you know? <laughs> I don't it think happens. you just happened to write 13 <laughs> books, but okay. Okay. Fair enough. All right. So Dr. Jones, <laughs> what about you? How did you get into instructional design and like learning and all of that stuff? Uh, so I did get into that by accident, um, <laughs> completely and totally by accident. And mm-hmm. my undergraduate major was communications and new media, mm-hmm. which was the closest thing I could get to like 
what I thought would turn me into a writer. I knew I wanted uh-huh. to study writing in different forms. And our program was split between the English department and the technology department. And so mm-hmm. we would have to like mix assignments. So while we were learning to code HTML, we would write like poetry and oh then mix God. them together. Right. It was such a cool program. That and is I, a really cool program. I ended up being the person who explained the technology stuff to mm-hmm. the writing faculty and the English faculty who were working with us mm-hmm. just by accident. And um, and they the college offered me a job there when I graduated. And so I was helping kind of in this instructional technology sort of area mm-hmm. and working with adult students who had dropped out because I was an expert at dropping out of college <laughs> uh, before I graduated. Um, so and I, I just got really interested on like the meta of it all. Mm-hmm. So learning about learning. Yeah. Um, so, I, you know, I, I took it from there and did a master's in education and build curriculum and design courses and started helping professors and people with a lot of deep expertise to develop courses and like learn how to teach. Um, right. Because being an expert and knowing how to teach are two completely different things. Absolutely. And totally yeah. different. Mm-hmm. Um, so I, I taught middle school and high school, but mostly adults. And mm-hmm. I worked at a university for like 12 years um, mm-hmm. as an administrator and as a professor. And so now I'm the director of education for a nonprofit. And so like I've been I've taught in so many different venues, but mm-hmm. really I love helping other people figure out how to teach what they're passionate about. My PhD is in curriculum and instruction, um, but my favorite area of research is the extracurricular. So like Mm -hmm. how people learn outside of school Yeah, and podcasts are a great venue for that kind of learning. So that makes podcasting even more fun and geeky for me. (laughs) I love it. Yeah. Yeah. It's really cool. So I thought I'd bring in a little bit of learning. Like I don't want to I don't want to just like wedge it in there, but it, it is relevant to me, some of this learning theory when you're engaging with a podcast to learn a topic like how story works. Oh, my God. And- no, I think this is wonderful. I mean, this is exactly what I, I want you to be able to do, because it's one thing for me to have this expertise, but to be able to um, make it accessible to people so that people can actually learn it. Um, that is like the next thing that I absolutely need. So, um, please don't ever feel bad about bringing the learning in because, um, first of all, it's fascinating. Second of all, I think that it's useful to everyone because no matter what you do, where you are, at some point you're teaching somebody something, you know, so this is fantastic. Thank you. No, it's it's just so much fun. I love it. Mm -hmm. Um, But I thought we would talk about like spaced repetition, summary and reflection very quickly. Okay. Because Mm -hmm. I realized this is what I'm doing to engage Mm -hmm. with the podcast. Mm -hmm. So the theory of spaced repetition is that we learn best when we get smaller doses of information spread out over a period of time, Mm -hmm. which is why, you know, you go to class typically for an hour and not for 12 hours right because right? mm-hmm. you can only take in so much and then right. you want a little bit of space and then you need that information repeated mm-hmm. maybe in a slightly different way so okay. when you're listening to a podcast and then you wait a week and you think about what you heard and then you get the next episode like spaced repetition is kind of built in to podcasts yeah. mm-hmm. which i think is really cool um and so then one of the ways to help yourself learn is to write your own summary of what you've heard mm-hmm even if it's really, really short, or even it's just like the one thing you're taking away, mm-hmm. but putting things in your own words yeah. is then really helpful. And then you reflect on that summary and see what questions you have. 
Mm-hmm. So it's that pattern of space repetition, summary, and reflection. So that's what I did. So I thought I'd, I'd kind of go back to some of the things we talked about last week mm-hmm. just to help with that repetition. And oh, then I que- as I was doing that, questions came up for me that I put in here for you to answer. Okay. Awesome. Okay. So, so far, you define story, mm-hmm. an event or series of event, and narrative as a recounted event structure to evoke a particular meaning or Mm -hmm. experience so we use those words interchangeably you know story and narrative but when we say Mm -hmm. story we mean that narrative right stories told purposefully to evoke meaning and give the reader an experience yes yes generally i mean i have been using them interchangeably kind of when i'm talking about about you know storytelling and, and narrative theory and all of that kind of stuff there is that distinction i think it's important that we make that distinction so that people mm-hmm. understand because that there is a space where you can talk about a story which is just a series of events right. and a narrative which is a series of events that are built and structured and recounted to evoke a certain meaning right yeah that i think there are times where that is significant um and i do feel bad about the way that i that i do kind of use them interchangeably no um, yeah i don't think you can help it i mean th- those words right. are so deeply embedded in everything mm-hmm. we do and say but just right. it's helpful like to define a word in context so like mm-hmm. in the context of this show when we say right. story, that's what we're talking about narrative right mm-hmm. um and we had talked a little bit last time about the meaning of a story and how the reader brings the meaning and and we talked about genre a little bit and form mm-hmm. and so then i got to wondering what's the difference between what a story means versus what a story is about Oh, that is such an interesting question. I mean, first of all, I guess the first question is, is there a difference? When I think about what the story is about, I think about the movement of the story that like uh, about whatever is in the story, like this story is a woman finds out her birth mother is still alive and heads out to Alabama to confront her, you know, Mm -hmm. or something like that, that it's about the the events in the story, you know, mm-hmm. um, but then what the story means is really up to the reader. Like, you know, is this story or is this story about this woman who goes to Alabama? Right. Is that a story that means that you have to let go of the past because no good is going to come from dredging it up? Does it mean that strong connections can never be broken? And we won't know until we find out what happens like throughout mm-hmm. the story until the story is over. You can't really know what it means. But if you have a summary of a story, you can know what it's about. Okay. And so for me, that's kind of how I define that. Um, mm-hmm. But I mean, a lot of people will say what a story is about. They're talking about what it means. You yeah. Know? Yeah. It's so, interesting. Because yeah. mm-hmm. I was thinking about for me, like, well, if I was going to write something, I would probably start with what the story is about and not actually know what it means until I get done. At least oh, what I it means for you- me. I don't think you can know until it's done. I think that if you know what it means before you're done with it, um, it can interfere. You could get caught up in what it means instead of like actually telling the story and building it and then finding out. Mm-hmm. But every writer's different, though. I, yeah. Some writers may go in and know what it means, and that works perfectly for them. Yeah, yeah, I can see that too. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, but it, it, I guess that's helpful too. When I was thinking about the next thing, I kind of summarized mm-hmm. for myself was these, these elements of narrative, mm-hmm. and the way you've broken them down into craft. So they're like the things that you can, 
maybe explicitly work toward character mm-hmm. structure, conflict, theme, pacing, mm-hmm. um, and then your individual magic. And we'll talk about all those things here. Yeah. Uh, but those elements in some kind of alchemical combination are what make narrative transport possible. That mm-hmm. narrative transport, that feeling of falling into the story, right? Yes. Mm-hmm. So then I started wondering, does narrative transport exist for both the reader and the writer? Oh, okay. That is a really interesting question. My 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 first response is that it's it's different. Mm-hmm. I think when you're when you're writing when you're constructing, uh, what happens that is somewhat equivalent to the um, to the narrative transport is the the flow. Um, mm-hmm. If you've heard of that concept by uh, Mihai Csikszentmihalyi. Uh, yep. called it flow. Uh, those times when you're so consumed with what you're doing that time ceases to be a factor in your consciousness. I have had more times than I can even care to count where I've sat down to write and I've written a little bit, you know, I've done a little bit and then I look up and it's five hours later. And I think, I mean, seriously, I w- if I had asked to guess, I would have guessed maybe 40 five minutes maybe you know something like that you know um so that is the flow that happens when you're so consumed by a task that you're just living within that task and time ceases to kind of have meaning Mm -hmm. um i think that as a as a reader you get that narrative transport and sometimes as a writer you can get that narrative transport while reading your own stuff you know, okay. mm-hmm. um, but I think it's different. I think narrative transport is something you can experience as a reader, but as a writer, you're you're too in the meta. You're creating it. You're spinning yeah. it. You know, it's like you can't you can't lie down in the bed that you're making. You know, no, yeah, that um, makes sense. Yeah, so well, I don't know. I, that's, that's. I mean, off the top of because nobody has ever, like, this is the thing you do, Kelly. You ask me questions nobody's ever asked me before and that I've never thought about. Um, so I don't know 100%, but I think, like, that's my that's my gut instinct response to that. Okay. I think it's fascinating. And, and anyone looking for more information about flow, it is one of my favorite theories. I love, yeah. I love mm-hmm. Csikszentmihalyi's work. Um, and mm-hmm. his book, Flow, is fantastic. So mm-hmm. highly, highly recommended. Um, okay, so the last thing that I summarized was a writer is anyone who creates a narrative and narratives mm-hmm. can be built in many forms. So yes. that mode through which you work, novels, mm-hmm. screenplays, video games, whatever, for, form is the delivery mechanism for a narrative. Yes. And a reader mm-hmm. is anyone who engages with that narrative. Yes. So then I was thinking, all right, but what about meaning and magic for the writer? If a reader mm-hmm. gives a story, it's meaning, and you can't control that. And I'm not at all a control freak, Lonnie, so I don't even know why I thought of this question. <laughs> but if you can't, yeah. like, if the if the meaning finally comes from a reader, why write? Because you're also a reader. Oh. Um, yeah, you create the stories that you want to read, and then you get to define them for you. You know, um, every – okay – this whole idea that the reader defines the meaning is true. I will stand by that and I will fight you. But mm-hmm. that said, as a writer, generally as a communicator, you're going to communicate fairly clearly what it is that you want the reader to experience. Like you are building something specifically for a reader to experience in a certain way. Now, some readers are going to see things in there that you didn't see. Um, and some readers are going to see something completely beyond anything that you meant for it to have but that 
experience of your book belongs to that reader. But your mm-hmm. experience of your book also belongs to you. And I think that writers, I mean, I don't know. I think that writers write because there's a book they want to read that doesn't exist. I love that um, answer. You know, and I think that I I write my books for me as a reader. You know, mm-hmm. um, and I enjoy being able to go in and um, and get that experience out of it. There's also this intense experience. I mean, at least for me, my own personal writing experience, I'm sure other people are different, but I live the experience with my characters. I live mm-hmm. like I cry when they cry and I laugh when they laugh. And um, and so I experience all of that very, very intensely while I'm writing and there mm-hmm. is a high to it. There is a, a real excitement to that experience and I absolutely love it. Um, but I mean, in the end though, and I've always said this, for a story to be complete, you only need one reader. Like you as a writer, you write something, you write it, you encode it, somebody reads it, they decode it, right? Mm-hmm. And then the process is done. Now, once you have one reader, that's all you need. All the others are gravy. Right. You know, all the other readers are gravy, Um, but you are also a reader. So if you write a book and you read that book and you are that first reader, you've completed the process. Nobody else has to read it. Um, It's nice if they can. It's nice if you can share it with other people. Um, But in the end, I think that that you are the writer. You are the reader. Um, this is a, a creative experience that comes from you and is a gift you give yourself too. So, mm. yeah, I don't know. I love that so much. I love the idea that you need one reader and you can be that reader. That's yeah. beautiful and wonderful. Aww. So you can be like, I don't know, a character. Oh, see that transition? Ah, here we go. Ooh, All right, look at so- you go, girl. I see, I see what you're doing. So we are going to start the discussion today about narrative craft with character. Lonnie Dinerich, define your terms. What's no, a character? No, 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 no. You missed a word there. What do I need to do? Define your goddamn terms. Thank you very much. All right. So a character is any living entity with sentience and agency in a story. All right. Now, this includes your anthropomorphized animals, uh, aliens from other planets, sentient monsters. All of these are characters as long as they have like sentience and agency, that they have desires, things they want to do. They're thinking, right? They're thinking and acting because of that thought. Um, So characters do not have to be quote unquote human. But just so you know, any character that thinks, feels, and acts is coded as human. They are stand-ins for us. Animal Farm is not actually about animals. It's about people. Everything is about people. All right. Um, So, like, you know, for example, when the teapot in Disney's Beauty and the Beast is imbued with the thoughts, feelings, and desires of Mrs. Potts, it's a character. Uh, when Mrs. Potts returns to human form, then a teapot is just a teapot, right? Mm-hmm. It doesn't have sentience and agency. So that is the thing that makes a character a character. Okay. I like that because I was like any personified being in a story, right? Mm-hmm. Because some of my favorite characters are not yes. like what I would typically think of. So I was thinking about Bob, um, mm-hmm. the skull in Jim Butcher's uh, Harry Dresden yes. series. <laughs> it's like, Bob I is love absolutely Bob. a character. I love mm-hmm. Bob. Um, mm-hmm. The Bentley from Good Omens, like, 
I know it's not a, car. a character. It feels like one to me. Man. Okay, it, it feels, feels like, like a character. It feels like a character, and I can see where you get that, but it doesn't have its own sentience or agency. Um, yeah, that's it, uh, true. It does have. It does have. I would say a sense of personality. Yeah. Um, but it doesn't have sentience or agency, so it's not a character in there. But but a character by my definition. Okay. Somebody wants to. Somebody out there wants to call it a character. Go ahead. Uh-huh. I'm just telling you what I think. I'm just a story no, expert. You can just, no, I'm just joking. I'm joking. But I mean, like, yeah, like I, I wouldn't define it as a character. Okay. No, that works. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And I was thinking about Samantha. It's like the artificial intelligence system in the movie Her. And I haven't decided if that's a character I or not. I haven't seen Her, but somebody described it to me. I think one of my students did a story or did an article on it for uh-huh. their final paper or something. Um, so I remember hearing about it and I'm trying to remember what uh, what they did. Yeah, I think it was one of my students wrote a paper about it. Um, but if the, okay, does the, the AI, does it have sentience and agency? Does it want things? Does it desire things? Does it try to make things happen? I think so. Then yes, I then think it's a character. so. Okay, that's a character. Cool. Okay, yeah. so so yeah. I see what you're saying now. Okay, so mm-hmm. personality alone would not necessarily dictate agency or sentience. No, sentience. It has to it has to be aware, like self aware. It has to want things. It has to be able to think, uh, and it has to be able to want things. Want things. Okay, and and uh, you know go after things. Sentience okay. and agency, I think, are the defining qualities of a character. Okay, that makes sense to me. Mm-hmm. All right, so then when I was working on this, I got to thinking, can you write a story without characters? Nope. Okay, so nope. then I, I went Googling. I was like, yes. find me a story that has no characters in it. God damn it. Oh, I love you. Right? I, I was just you. like, can you do it? And the uh-huh. best example I found, even though I will say, I think that there I, there are no people in this story. It's a post-nuclear apocalypse story, but the house right. feels like a character to me. Um, But There Will Come Soft Rains by Ray Bradbury. Right. The opening line of There Will Come Soft Rains, because I have Google, too, is (laughs) in the living room, the voice clock sang, tick tock, seven o'clock, time to get up, time to get up, seven o'clock, as if it were afraid that nobody would. Mm -hmm. So we are personifying with the action of singing, Mm -hmm. uh, with the fear, right, that is essentially human and also a vulnerability, you know, mm-hmm. um, and that's the first sentence. We haven't even hit the first bit of punctuation before we've already got. So even with somebody who is writing something about a lifeless world, he is imbuing life, sentience and agency upon this clock. Oh, I love that. Because so, I was yeah. thinking that I was like, yeah, by sharing its experience, we feel what it feels. Mm-hmm. So that kind of was to me, I was like, well, that seems to be the purpose of a character. Like our characters, the, you know, the actors, avatars, whatever, for the emotional experience of a story. Like Mm -hmm. they're the vehicles or the mirrors for the human experience, which is the reason why we tell stories in the first place. Yes. Yes. I mean, George R. R. Martin, right? In Dance with Dragons, he has, Jojen says, um, a man who... A man who doesn't read lives but one life. A man who reads lives a thousand, right? right. That the whole the whole point of reading, of, and I'm talking about reading, about engaging with stories, is to have the experience, is to get that narrative transport, you know, is to feel 
what these people feel and experience what they experience. And it's also in a, in a relatively controlled environment, too. You mm -hmm. know, like, I mean, you, you may be, you know, with these these people running from people who are shooting at you are going to kill you. You have that thrill of the experience without actually having bullets whizzing past your head, which is a completely different experience. Right. There is something about this, this fictionalized experience that allows you to. Um, to play in spaces a little more safely than you might be able to otherwise. So um, it's it's fascinating what story can do. Yeah, yeah, it really, really mm -hmm. is. Um, okay, cool. Those are my questions. So we're going to talk about characters and their role in the story as far as meaning making goes. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So, and before we get on this, you have some great notes here. Um, I just want to recommend the book, uh, the Storytelling Animal by Jonathan Gottschall. Yes. Mm -hmm. If you have not read it, it's amazing and excellent and fabulous. And a f just, it, I don't know, it's a, it's a wonderful way of looking at the human experience of story with story um, yes. about story. Mm -hmm. So I will turn it over to you because you have great ideas about oh. meaning making. <laughs> Well, yeah, uh, humans are meaning-seeking creatures. Like, that's what what everything, meaning matters to us, right? And so the whole purpose of having characters within a story is so that we can assign meaning to the things that happen to them, you know? Mm -hmm. um, like, okay, for instance, like if my cat gets hit by a car, like whether the driver of the car intended to run over the cat or not will make absolutely no difference to the cat, right? Because the the physical experience of it is the same for the cat no matter what. But if my cat gets hit by a car and I discover that the person who hit my cat not only saw my cat there but hit the gas and was not sorry about it, oh, shit's about to go down, right? Mm -hmm. That has a completely different meaning. But the actual physical difference, like the cat's leg is still broken. Okay, did you guys think I was going to kill a cat? <laughs> my little scenario. No. no, no, I was not going. I did not kill a cat. Just got just got a little run over, a little tire tracky. That's all. Um, so the cat's leg is still broken. The vet bill is exactly the same, right? If it was some teenager taking a corner a little too fast who felt terrible about it, you know, you forgive and you move on. No big deal, kid. You know, you didn't mean it. But if it was my neighbor who was pissed off because I don't mow my lawn often enough or whatever stupid thing neighbors get mad about, um, now... It's so much worse because this hurt was inflicted on my cat deliberately, right? Mm -hmm. The only difference between those two stories is the meaning behind it, right? right. You know, the the evil, the um the the careless accident that can be forgiven easily, right? Um the the terrible person who does something terrible you know, because they want to, right? You know, um, the difference in that is only in the meaning, yet that carries everything. That makes all the difference as far as like what it means to me. Now the cat, doesn't matter, mm -hmm. right? Same experience to her. The cat does not care. Um, I think, you know, although I will say, and I know there are people like, I can hear the people out there <laughs> being like, no, Cats care. Like, okay, yes. An animal who trusts a human and that human then betrays that trust. I think an animal can feel that, right? Yeah. But who hit them with the car? Like, I don't think they really know the difference. And how much that meaning actually matters to, like, animals is just different. I think there's a certain level at which there is some of that meaning that, that matters. But to humans, it matters completely 
That is the thing that matters. Um, and so figuring out the why behind things, that's the meaning that we're always looking for. That's the meaning that we're always seeking. And that's what we look for in our stories is what it means. And we figure out what it means through the characters. Okay. So characters in whatever shape they take are the human <laughs> elements of story, right? Yes. So it makes sense to start our narrative discussion on craft with character. Mm-hmm. So how do you build a character? You know, it's really interesting um, because characters, I think, for some writers come naturally to where they don't even think about how do you build a character. You just take a person and you put them in it and that's it. Right. You know, Um, but there is actually some things that you can and and probably should think about while you are developing your characters. Um, One thing that I've built is this idea of the character triangle. Right. Mm -hmm. That there are basically three vertices in the character triangle that represent strength, weakness and vulnerability because it's a mixture of those things that create your character, right? So strengths are the things that your character does well or positive qualities that they possess. Uh, Weaknesses are the things your character cannot do well or negative qualities that they possess. And vulnerabilities are the things that can hurt your character, like emotionally, deep down where it matters. Um, So strengths and weaknesses are important. It's important to think about these things. Um, When you talk about, you know, what a character's strengths are. And I I really, I always have fun doing this exercise with my students, right? Because I will come up with a bunch of qualities and I'll be like, all right, kindness. Kindness is what? Strength, weakness, vulnerability. And they would be like, oh, it's a strength. Mm -hmm. And I'm like, well, what if you're so kind all the time that you end up hurting yourself? You know, Mm -hmm. and they would be like, oh, well, in that case, it's a weakness. And I'm like, yeah, you know, vice taken to or virtue taken to excess can be vice, you know, that there's a point with that on that spectrum where you can find yourself tipping over. So we would go through all these lists of things and I would be like, you know. Um, you know, can't dance. That's a weakness. You know, (laughs) we like make them define all of these things. Like what is a strength? What is a weakness? What is a vulnerability? And then always inevitably I get to the card that says kryptonite, right? For, for Superman. So, so Dr. Jones, kryptonite, strength, weakness, vulnerability. Weakness. Weakness. Definitely. A lot of people say vulnerability. A lot of people say vulnerability because they're like, well, kryptonite can hurt Superman, right? Mm -hmm. You know, but that's a physical hurt. That's like a physical, like it drains his strength. Although, okay, 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 okay. Joshua Unruh, my (laughs) co-host on Listen Up A-Holes, is a superhero uh, scholar, superhero expert, knows everything about them. And he is probably out there saying, well, actually, kryptonite doesn't blah, blah, blah. And then he'll be thinking about the red and the green and the different. Okay, Unruh, I know. I'm just using it as an example. I don't know. I don't really know what kryptonite does, but I know it has some kind of bad effect on Superman. So if I'm wrong, technically, or whatever, it's fine. Um, but, But it's not a vulnerability. What is actually a vulnerability when it comes to Superman is his love for Lois Lane. Right. Mm -hmm. Um, Because no matter how powerful he is or how many people he can save, he can't always protect her. You know, so that, in essence, is a vulnerability. Um, A vulnerability are the things that um, that can really bother us, that can deeply hurt us. Um, And vulnerability will usually stem from uh, from four essential sources, love, shame, identity and fear. Right. So those are the things that get us where we live. Those are vulnerabilities. Um, When you are in love with somebody who does not love you back, that is a vulnerability. Um, When you are embarrassed because you grew up poor, um, that is a vulnerability. When you have a secret, 
that you don't want anybody to know. Those things that shame that we carry deep within us, that is a vulnerability. Mm -hmm. Um, So those are the things that give us vulnerability. Now, one of the things that immediately happens with my students is that they're like, all right, so we're going to build a character. We're going to have three strengths and three weaknesses and three vulnerabilities, right? (laughs) No, that's not how that works. It's not about a it's not a numbers game. It's mm-hmm. not a numbers game. And it's not even a balancing game. You know, you can have a character that has more strengths than weaknesses. That's fine. You can have a character that has more weaknesses than strengths. That's fine. But you should have a sense of what those strengths and weaknesses are and what kind of balance you want. You know, you have someone with more strengths than weaknesses that gets us into this like hero territory. Right. You know, you get us in someone who has more weaknesses than strengths. You can be getting into like rogue hero territory, which is also really fun, right? Mm-hmm. You know, um, and also you've got somebody who has a place to go, has a, a place to grow. You know, that we can see them get better. You know, as they move through the story, that we can see them improve. You know, and that's always really fun to work with. Um, but vulnerability, you know, it depends. Of course, everything. There's always variables, but it depends on the scale of the story. If you're doing like a movie, you know, you can have one vulnerability, like one major vulnerability. You can have more than one. But if you have a lot of vulnerability, like this character becomes just a raw, open wound, you know, and it can be very uncomfortable uh, dealing with that character. Having one vulnerability, especially if that vulnerability can tie into the main action, like if it's in your protagonist, having that vulnerability tie into the the main conflict, giving them an internal conflict that, that plays with and tweaks that vulnerability vulnerability while they're going through this story, then that's really a fantastic way to go. Um, That works wonderfully. Um, And giving a vulnerability that is reflected in the conflict takes that protagonist and forces them to grow and to be uncomfortable. And it is through that discomfort that we see our characters grow. So that can be a lot of fun. Um, So working with this character triangle and trying to figure out how you're going to balance strengths, weaknesses, and vulnerabilities within a character um, can help you kind of play with that character. If you feel like a character is a little too flat or there's something that you're not getting, out of them, taking some time with a character triangle and sort of thinking about it, thinking about how to balance that out can really be helpful. Okay. So then once you're kind of starting to build this character and you're thinking about their strengths and weaknesses and vulnerabilities, how do you name them, right? Because oh. I mean, generally speaking, most characters need a name. Most characters do need a name. Like, you know, like you just you need something to call this character. Um, Actually, uh, naming characters is very important and not that easy (laughs) because it's it's kind of like, you know it when you see it, you know, the right thing when you see it. I had a book that I was writing some years ago that I started out writing a character as Emma and her Mm -hmm. name was Emma and I was writing her as Emma and I could not make any progress with this character. Just for some reason, I kept trying to write her and I just couldn't get her. I couldn't understand her. And then I renamed her to Flynn. 
And as soon as she was Flynn, I knew who she was and I could write the rest of the story. Um, But I just could not get started with Emma. And sometimes it's just not the right name. And so the idea that you can just pull a name out of a hat and have that be your character, I think doesn't really work. Like you have to feel connected with that name. Um, Also, names have associations with them, you know, Mm -hmm. Um, and they allow you to add flavor to a character at absolutely no cost. Right. Mm -hmm. So there's never any reason to name a character Bob Smith, you know, (laughs) unless unless, you know, you want him to be someone who can blend in everywhere. You want him to be forgetful. Um, Maybe he's an incredibly colorful character and you're using Bob Smith as an ironic name. Mm -hmm. You know, Okay, fine. But like as a as a general rule, I think you want to be very, very careful as as we have learned most recently, the name Karen now has certain associations with it, right? <laughs> yep. Um, and Becky has certain uh-huh. associations with it, right? Um, so there are certain names that will pick up associations as they go. Uh, you can't control the associations that are going to be picked up in the future, but the ones that are there now while you're writing, you want to be aware of and think about it. Like if if you have a character named Esther, right? Mm-hmm. If I have a character named Esther, um, what immediately comes to mind for you? The, the Old Testament. Old Testament, right? Like an yeah. older character. Yeah. Or or like someone deeply spiritual or pagan mm-hmm. or like a goddess or Easter or Ooh. yeah, mm-hmm. something like that. Lots of lots of neat associations with that, right? Mm-hmm. Right. Yeah, but I would expect that to be a powerful personality. Mm-hmm. Right. Exactly. So, I mean, those are the things like right there. There are certain associations that come with particular names, you know. Um, so... If you know, like, that this is a character with a certain kind of personality, you can find names that will match that personality. Um, But there are certain, like, a Bob Smith kind of character. Whenever you have a lot of characters that are named Bob or Jim or Dan or Susan or Carol or... Sarah or Jennifer or like any of these like really, really common names, at least in, in you know, modern American culture. Those are very, very common names. Um, they don't tend to have a lot of personality associated with them. Mm-hmm. And they're really, really easy to forget, especially in your secondary characters. Right. Um, but, you know, somebody is like nobody is going to forget like Maximilian Copperfield. <laughs> like, you're going to remember that name, right? You know, Sebastian Moberly, Jenny Hofstetler, Philippa Orpington of the Cincinnati Orpingtons. Like, you're not <laughs> going to forget any of those. Like, you read that, you'd be like, yep, that's Philippa. That's Philippa. I know her. Um, so you can kind of picture all those people. Like, names really matter. And I mean, that's all like I've given you of any of those characters are just those names, right? Mm-hmm. But you get a sense of, like, who they are from those names. And it's really, really great. Um, but understanding the association, too, like, I, I did not know this. I, I learned some years ago that the name Colin in the UK is apparently, like, a super nerdy name. Like when people, people roll their eyes over Colin, right? I had no idea. I thought it was totally like sexy. I think it's a hellishly sexy name. Like, (laughs) yeah. So yeah, like my association with Abbott in the UK, apparently it's, it's a big nerdy name like Poindexter or whatever. So um, I don't know if it's quite that that extreme, um, but it is interesting. So like understanding those associations, you know, um, mm-hmm. and understanding how they're going to read to your audience, I think is is really important. And then finding names that are that are good and that work well for you. Um, I have gone to baby naming um, websites 
so much. Like whenever mm-hmm. I'm naming the characters so much, I go to the baby naming websites and I just start thinking. A lot of times I'll be like, well, I think it's a name. I think their name starts with a B or something, you know, and then I'll start looking in that or I'll I'll be like, you know what? I think it's going to be an Irish name, you know, or I think it's going to be like a Danish name, you know, and you'll go and look all that kind of stuff up. Um, and then eventually you'll find something that feels right for that character. But it does take a while. I think mm-hmm. to really name a character effectively, although sometimes a name will just come to you. Yeah. Sometimes it'll just be there right on the tip. And you're just like, I just know who that character is, you know? Right. Um, so it, it really is hugely, hugely important. It can be very, very challenging to do. And then sometimes it'll just be right there and that's it. Okay. Yeah. And I think those cultural associations are mm-hmm. important too. And realizing they may not mean the same thing to your readers that they mean to you. Um, so if you're relying too heavily on that, mm-hmm. it's just good to be aware of, you know, or maybe you have associations with names that you don't even know you have. Yeah. So yeah, that's, that's interesting. And you can't control for all of that. Like some right. of that, you know, you're going to have to, but, but being aware of it as much as you can and using the momentum of those associations that already exist, mm-hmm. you know, like if you want to use the momentum of a name like Colin, go ahead and use it, you know, right? <laughs> um, know what you're doing, put that into your character, uh, but also your character over time. Like your reader is going to see the character more than they see the name. But the first introduction is that name. That's your first impression. Mm-hmm. So you want to make sure that you you use that name well. Okay. That makes a you lot know, of sense. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So because I love putting you on the spot and I love hearing <laughs> about people's processes. Yes. Can you walk us through an example of building and naming one of your characters? Since you have written 13 books, I'm just going to mention that again. Like the I 13 have. books that you have written. Uh, can okay, you give no, us an I've example? published 12. Okay. I've written probably 14, but I've published 12. So anyway, um, I know, I know that's pedantic, but anyway. Um, <laughs> so I, well, I already talked about Emma and Flynn from, from Crazy and Love. I think another naming, um, na- character naming thing that was fun was uh, Portia Fallon, who's the mm-hmm. main character from X and the Single Girl. Um, I also really enjoyed naming her mom and her two aunts, who were Mags, Vera, and Bev. Or her mm. mom and her aunt, and then the mom, the grandma was Bev. Um, and those were the Ms. Fallons. And they were really, really fun to play with. And um, for the the Ms. Fallons, they just came to me. You know, mm-hmm. I just knew, like, I wanted to call the book the Ms. Fallons, and I wanted this. And it just was one of these things that, like, came to my mind, and then I started building from there, you know? Because sometimes that happens. Um, but Portia, I didn't know what her name was at first. I knew Mags, Vera, and Bev. Mm-hmm. But I wasn't sure about Portia as my main character. I wasn't sure what her name was. Um, and then I remembered um, Portia from Measure for Measure um, and uh, the Shakespeare's Measure for Measure. And I had always liked that name, you know, mm-hmm. and I always thought it was it was very, very cool. And so I pulled it in. You know, and I used that and she was, you know, pursuing a degree, a, a graduate degree in um, in English. And I was working on that. And so um, she was, you know, into Shakespeare. And then she ended up, you know, meeting a man who um, who would, you know, quote Shakespeare back at her. 
which was really nice. Mm-hmm. You know, that was very, very sexy. Um, and Portia, I built before I ever really knew about strengths, weaknesses, and vulnerabilities. Um, and most characters are honestly like a, a combination of strengths, weaknesses, and vulnerabilities, just kind of on their own. Mm-hmm. It's just like being able to name them and look at them and really understand them helps you make sure that the character is built well. Somebody that is all strengths is really annoying and super perfect good and who the hell cares. And somebody who is all weaknesses is also annoying, but in a really different way um, and can be a real problem. Um, but again, like the vulnerability is is a huge thing. And I think I've instinctively been able to bring that into my characters before I even really understood it. I didn't really understand the importance of vulnerability in character work until 2010 when I watched that Brene Brown video, which yeah. we all know, right? The TED yep. Talk. Will there be a link to it in the show notes? Um, and I saw Brene Brown, who is a... Um, a what is she a social researcher what is yes. she she she's her phd is in uh sociology and she she researches shame i mean that's or, or yeah, you know she's vulnerability in particular mm-hmm. but yeah so absolutely yeah. social science researcher uh, brilliant brilliant woman brilliant researcher brilliant speaker absolutely all her work highly recommended (laughs) yeah she's unbelievable and I absolutely recommend it but she does stuff that's like you know like self-helpy kind of stuff like here Mm -hmm. you know take a look at yourself (laughs) girl (laughs) get your shit together man you know um so uh so she does that stuff and I watched this and it was when I was watching it that she was saying that vulnerability is how we access each other Right. Mm -hmm. Um, That vulnerability is it isn't until we see each other's vulnerability and allow ourselves to be seen that we can actually connect with each other until then we cannot connect. Right. And so it was at that point that unlocked all of my character theory work in that. It is vulnerability that allows us to connect with each other. And in stories, the people in these stories are real to us. Our experience, our emotional experience of these characters is analogous to our emotional experience of other actual people. Right. Mm -hmm. So um, so it is that vulnerability that allows us as readers, as people to connect with these characters as people. Um, And so having that vulnerability in there in these characters is really important. Um, So with Portia, um, her vulnerability actually stems from her issues with men. She was abandoned by her father, then abandoned by her boyfriend. Um, She's certain that no man will ever actually love her. She's surrounded by women who also can't keep men um mm-hmm. she called they call it penis teflon um in this book i don't know why i think that's a terrible fucking term i don't know why i decided that was cute i decided it was cute and it's all over the book and just deal with it um but basically like none of the women in um in her family can hold on to a man's love and there's something about that missing masculine love and affection for her that is a real a real source of vulnerability a real source of feeling like something is is wrong with her and and um and in the end you know i made it into this love story where you know she ends up finding a man and they fall in love and he loves her and she you know reconnects with her father and kind of heals those old wounds and all that kind of stuff and you know and as i look at it like i love love stories and i love romances you know mm-hmm. I've, I've always loved those um and i don't think there's anything inherently wrong with that but there is this sense of 
that first of all, it's incredibly heteronormative that a woman must have a man and a man must have a woman in order to be happy, which I think is bullshit. Um, also that you need somebody else, you know, like I feel like when I wrote that story and the way that I finished it, because I finished it with the happy ending is she's with a man, right? Mm-hmm. Um, that the meaning behind that story is don't worry, honey, you got a man to love you. So it's OK, <laughs> you know, when I think that an actual more empowering story choice would be, girl, you don't need a man to love you. Love yourself. Be your own one true love. That's it. You know? <laughs> yeah. Um, and it's funny because I look, I love love stories. Mm-hmm. I love love stories and I love romances and I love telling those stories. And because I'm straight, they they end up being straight love stories, heteronormative love stories. Um but I feel like that also is um, really kind of reinforces this heteronormative patriarchal kind of bullshit that we've got in our society, you know. Um, and so I, I, I kind of I look at it now and I'm like, God, I kind of wish I had done that differently. Well, <laughs> I, I still like the story. No, <laughs> and I like I like that book um, mm-hmm. a lot. But I do think that there's something to that, like in the right, the vulnerability of writing. Because if you're writing the story, any story, then mm-hmm. some of your yourself, your own vulnerability, the way you see the world, whatever, is going to yeah. get in there. Yeah. And as we change and grow and, you know, have different life experiences, and then you look back at something you wrote a long time ago, and you're like, oh, God. Yeah. But if you have published it, yeah. then it's, you know, then it's out there. And I, I think that, I mean, at least for me, that's a real part of the vulnerability of of doing any kind of work. Like, oh, God, please oh, don't yeah. listen to one of my podcasts from two years ago. Like, oh, God, <laughs> please don't do that. Um, yeah. You know, because once you put something out there, then it's out there. And so it's like, I, I do think that's a real thing, though, when it comes to, to sharing yeah. story, because you again you're not going to necessarily see everything you're putting in it and then later you're going to grow and change and look back at it and be like oh shit um yeah and the thing know. is like i love i love telling love stories and you're that's good i don't think at that's it. necessarily a bad thing i, I don't, don't think it's a bad thing but i do think that there is a a particular kind of story that we tell over and over and over again where the the healing comes from a man and a woman in love, you know? Mm-hmm. And like, I don't know. I don't, like, I love Good Omens, right? Good Omens yes. is one of the best love stories ever. And we don't get any kind of sexual, sadly, any kind of sexual, sadly. textual, <laughs> so textual <sad>. sexual, like, <laughs> love between Crowley and Aziraphale. Um, but there is, like, that incredible love story there. I love Crazy Ex-Girlfriend as a love story between the two best friends, Paula and Rebecca, right? Um, so there are lots of love stories to be told that don't necessarily reaffirm this destructive sort of patriarchal thing. And I think that you can tell straight love stories that don't do that. And I oh, haven't yeah. read X and the Single Girl in a while, so maybe it doesn't. But when I look back on it, I'm like, you know, here she is. She's struggled with all of this love from a man. And the only thing that can heal her is love from a man. Like, I don't know. But I don't know. I have to go back and read it again to see if that's really what I did. I don't know. I'm getting off topic here. But yeah, it is it is a vulnerability. And sometimes you don't know, like you, you tell the stories that come to you and that are part of your worldview at the time. And I don't think most writers want to put destructive things out there. But sometimes it happens. And the only thing you can do is go and write more stories. 
Yeah. Just go and write more yeah. stories and fix that shit, you know, um, and put things into the world that you deliberately want to put into the world, you know? No, so, I love that. Yeah. I think that's yeah. great. So I was thinking about this in like the, mm-hmm. um, I don't know, the, oh, let me kneel at your feet, teach me section, yes. uh, which I don't yes. know what to call yet. I will come up with a name <laughs> for this. But so I was thinking about this with character and like uh-huh. really understanding the purpose and role of a character and, and. All of that, which makes total sense to me. But, and and as I said in the last episode, stories usually come to me as a premise, right? A situation, Mm -hmm. a place, a world, but not characters. Yes. So I was thinking about an example of this. Um, So I want to write a story about fairy godmothers because Mm -hmm. I'm obsessed. How they became fairy godmothers. How they learn to be fairy godmothers, because God damn it, there's got to be a curriculum, right? Yes. Why they <laughs> exist in the first place. And uh-huh. that that story came to me as a flash of the fairy godmother's training manual and rule book. <laughs> so like, I sat down one day and I wrote like 12 rules that are in this manual mm-hmm. that they have to follow. Mm-hmm. Um, but no characters. There wasn't a character in there. I don't have a character idea. I want to write the goddamn rule book. But that does not sound like a story. So how can I pull a character from that idea? Mm, That's interesting. All right. Well, first of all, every process is different. All right. Mm -hmm. So like I, for instance, start with characters and other people don't. Um, See, I always feel bad as somebody that starts with characters because I always wish I had a stronger sense of like concept. You know, Um, I don't write high concept. I I write stories and characters and moments and all that kind of stuff. Um, But it's it's never like this this like really great high concept, like, say, the fairy godmother's training manual and rule book. Right. Which is awesome. And that's huge, wonderful concept. So while you're like, oh, but I don't have characters. Just remember that that there are things that you do have and things, strengths that you do have that other people say me might kill for. So just, you know. All right. but when but you need to start with character like to start because character is everything character is where you start right um and sometimes it's not as easy um for for some writers to start with that so there are ways that you can do that um and the biggest secret of writing this is the biggest this is the most valuable if you take nothing else away from anything you ever hear from me take this as Oscar Wilde said, talent borrows, genius steals. Just steal someone <laughs> you love and put them into your story. That's it. It can be someone you actually know in real life. It could be a character from a book, movie, TV show, or a video game. Just put them in. All right. And now I hear all y'all out there want to start saying, Lonnie says plagiarize. And y'all can just slow your roll right now. Plagiarizing is copying and pasting. And it's unbelievably stupid, not just because it is both illegal and immoral, but it'll ruin whatever you're doing with your book because you put stuff in that's not yours. It's not going to work. It's not going to mesh with what you're doing. But using a person, be they real or imaginary, as a placeholder in your story is just fine because as you write your story that character is going to become yours they're going to morph into your story they're going to fit in they're going to become something different than what they were when they started so it is not plagiarism Mm -hmm. Shakespeare by the way stole all of his storylines and characters but what he finished with was his all right so it's 
fine. Once you've filed the serial numbers off, the character changes anyway. Nobody's ever going to know. It's fine. It's fine. Right. And um, there are there yeah. are exceptions to that, right? So, like, if I wanted to write an adaptation of Rapunzel, I could still call my character Rapunzel. Like, that, yeah. you know, that kind of stuff is still fine. And in fan fiction, it's fine. But I hear what you're saying. And, like, I never thought about taking... I never thought about taking someone I knew and yeah. just putting her into this idea. I never thought or about that Or an actor. Yeah. yeah. An actor you really like. Anything. I mean, there's a million ways that you can do it. Um, so, I mean, let's, you know, for inspiration, let's go ahead and steal Hermione Granger. Right? Ah. For your story. All right. Uh, but we can't call her Hermione Granger because that's copying and pasting. That is stealing. So let's call her, say, Philippa Orpington of the <laughs> Cincinnati Orpingtons. All right. Um, let's say she's not a witch kid anymore. She's not magical. She's just old. This is mm -hmm. what happens when Hermione Granger gets super, super old. Right. You know, she's tired. She's studied everything and she's learned everything. And now she just doesn't care anymore. She just wants to die already and pass on to whatever is next. But she can't. And she just found out the reason why she can't die is because she's a fairy godmother, a fairy goddamn godmother so after an entire long <laughs> fucking life of female service to others caring for a husband raising kids serving on every goddamn school and town committee she has to keep living and keep serving people are you fucking kidding me right <laughs> so she's pissed off but when she gets there you know she's not good at it Little Miss Perfect, Little Miss Smarty Pants, Little Miss Good at everything for her entire like 85 years of life has found that the one thing she was born to do, she can't do right. Hermione Granger, old as a failure. Oh, my God. All right. <laughs> so now Hermione Granger was a magical little kid in the Harry Potter series. And I took her basic characteristics like she's super smart. She's good at everything. She's better than everyone else at everything and extrapolated that to kind of stick a fork in my eye existence. That kind of perfection is going to lead you to. Right. She's sick of it. She's sick of being perfect all the time. So she led a perfect life. It bored the fuck out of her. She just wants to die and have it be over. Then discovers she can't die. She's going to live forever. And she has to spend her entire life being of service and she's bad at it. I mean, <laughs> it sounds like fun to me. You yeah, know? it does. But if you, if you picked up that book, you wouldn't rec recognize Hermione in that character. No, right? not at You wouldn't at look all. at that and think Hermione Granger, right? So it's inspiration taken, right? Talent borrows, genius steals, just steal that shit, and by the time you're done, it's going to be yours. Okay. Oh, that's a great place to start. Like, I never, I never would have thought of that in a million years. I love how your <laughs> mind works. I love it. So how do you know if a character fits your story or if your story fits a character? Um, You don't know. <laughs> you don't know until you've written for a while. Um, you When you start writing a story and you start writing a character, you're still kind of getting comfortable with each other. You're kind of figuring it out, especially if you're in your discovery phase. We'll talk about discovery, drafting, and revision as, as three distinct yet often overlapping phases of writing. Um, but when you're still figuring it out, like you you can't really know. There, there are stories I've started uh, that haven't been right 
you know, like the the Emma and Flynn thing. Like when I renamed Emma, she became a different character. When she was Flynn, she was a character I could work with. But when she was Emma, I couldn't, you know. Um, And eventually you kind of figure it out. And it may be that you need to replace the character in the story or it may be that you need to take that character and find a different story for them. Mm -hmm. Um, But it's one of those things that like you don't know until you spend some time working with them most of the time the story and the character meld together like you're building them together and they sort of fall into each other um so it's a pretty rare instance at least in my personal experience where um where i've just had a character and a story that are at odds with each other like i just can't make them work together you know um usually i can but sometimes it happens and then you can separate them out or you know just go on to something else and try something new okay Oh my gosh, this was so much fun. So, <laughs> wrapping up our summary here. Yes. Characters live the narrative. Mm-hmm. Relatable characters have strengths, weaknesses, and vulnerabilities. And usually they have names. Sure, sure. And in our next episode, we will talk about types of characters and character roles. Ooh, that's so fun. I love that. That's going to be the fun discussion. That's one of my favorite things to to teach. My favorite day is when I teach this course. <laughs> oh, yay. It's going to be great. Oh, I love it. <laughs> so like kind of our, our little homework exercise here. I thought mm-hmm. it would be fun. And I love the fact when I opened the notes back up, like you did the assignment already. I did the assignment. So I did it. you can answer this as an example and that'll be fun. Okay, and I'll sure. And I'll do mine for next week. Sounds good. Um, so the assignment is choose three of your favorite characters. What are their strengths, weaknesses, and vulnerabilities? What do their names mean to you? Do their names suit them? Why or why not? Ooh. Yeah. No, it was really fun. I didn't, I was doing this and I didn't even realize that it was homework we were giving to the, I was like, oh, <laughs> this is neat. I'm going to do it. Um, all right. So my first one is Agnes Nutter from Good Omens, uh-huh. right? Um, strengths. She's tough. She's taking nobody's bullshit. I love that. Um, she's also psychic. That is yeah. a strength. She can see the future. Um, she's stubborn. She's nosy. She's a little mean. Mm-hmm. <laughs> although mm-hmm. I don't know. Although I would, I would technically call those weaknesses. I still kind of <laughs> like them about her. Um, her vulnerability is kind of lacking. Now the thing is, is, Agnes is not a protagonist. Right. Um, getting vulnerability. And this is one of the things we'll talk about that next week when we talk about character roles, like protagonists and antagonists and all that. Like what they need to do, and your supporting characters. Like your protagonist absolutely needs to have vulnerability. Mm-hmm. Nobody else really needs. To because we don't need to necessarily connect emotionally with all of the characters, but every character that you give vulnerability to, we will be able to connect to. So it's always, I think, almost always a good thing to have that in there. Um, Agnes Nutter is more of a joke character in mm-hmm. Good Omens. Um, I mean, I love her, uh, but she doesn't really have vulnerability. You can't really connect with her that much. Um, so she's she's a lot of fun, but we don't really have any sense of vulnerability from her. Um, and also names. I mean, Agnes Nutter. Yeah. What is a possible? What could possibly be a better name than that? That is a fabulous, fabulous name. So I, I love it. I think it's the best. Um, another character that I love is Buffy Summers from Buffy the Vampire Slayer, right? Um, her strengths are she's smart, she's funny, she's honorable, she's loving, she's brave. Mm-hmm. Um, her weaknesses are she really loves a lot of bad, bad men. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Jesus Christ, if I've talked about Parker Abrams for one more day. <laughs> swear to god um she's a little superior she's a little Mm self-absorbed um 
her vulnerability is always love. I mean, over seven seasons of Buffy, there are going to be a number of different vulnerabilities. When I was talking about scale mm-hmm. um, before, that's kind of what I was talking about. The, the vulnerability is going to change over time. If you're doing a a book, you know, of like one-off book or a, a movie or whatever, like that's just one story. You might have one vulnerability for that story. When you have a character who's involved in a million different stories over across seven seasons of, you know, TV and everything, um, then you may have a number of vulnerabilities. But Buffy's vulnerability almost always tracks back to love. Mm-hmm. Tracks back to love for her friends, love for her mother, for her sister. Um, love for the men, the the terrible fucking men that she loves. <laughs> um, so that's almost always the source of her vulnerability, but we'll find it in a number of different incarnations throughout, um, throughout Buffy. Also, identity I think is a big thing for Buffy. Uh, identity. I mean, it's, she's the Slayer. Right. She is the Slayer. You know, um, and yet when she and it's it's a huge burden for her to carry. But yet when she loses that identity in the season three episode, helpless where she's just a regular girl again. She doesn't have her Slayer strength. It's a huge struggle for her, yeah. you know? Um, so identity is a huge, huge source of vulnerability and and something we'll need to talk about, I think, in more detail at another time uh, mm-hmm. because that is almost an entire discussion in and of itself. Um, but identity is huge. Um, but her name, her name is terrible. Uh, Buffy Summers is a terrible fucking name, and here's why. Um, Joss Whedon... I do believe this and I cannot I cannot put, you know, assign motivations or whatever to somebody who I don't know and who I am not. But I will say from the outside, it reads that Joss Whedon chose this name to make fun of her. You know, Um, how funny is it to have a vampire slayer named Buffy, a name that evokes blonde vapidity? Right. Um, And Summers is the last name that evokes the idea of sunlight. And that's what you kill a vampire with. So I'm like, okay with Summers. Right. But I will never not see Buffy as a name that you mock and make fun of. And um, and the thing is, is that like the the um, the feminist provenance of Buffy, I think, is under question, under serious question. I think that. Uh, Buffy came about as a chance to cleverly subvert a trope rather than celebrate feminine power. Mm-hmm. Um, it accidentally fell ass backwards into celebrating feminine power. It does not always do that well. Uh, but there's other amazing, wonderful things that happen with Buffy. I've just got, I just, I have, I have an issue with the name. Yeah. The name yeah. feels like mockery to me. I don't mm-hmm. like it. No, I agree with that 100,000%. All right. So my last character is Tyrion Lannister. Mm-hmm. Um, from Game of Thrones. Um, his strengths are he's smart, he's funny, he's honorable, he's loving, he's brave. He does seem to be really good in the sack based on those scenes <laughs> that I've seen with him. Um, his weaknesses are that he's hedonistic and he's selfish. Um, his vulnerability is our love and shame. Um, it's love for his family, definitely. Um, shame over his form, because mm-hmm. uh, he's a little he's a little person born into a world that was not kind uh, to uh, to anybody who was different. Um, and he has a great name, Tyrion Lannister. Tyrion Lannister. 
Yeah. A great fucking name. It, it evokes this uh, sense of privilege, which, of course, he's one of the rich families, you know, of, of Westeros. Um, but it also has this, I don't know, there's a pluckiness to it. Yeah. Maybe, maybe because I've known Tyrion Lannister all these years, I associate that pluckiness. It's backward associated that I got it from him. And so now I associate with the name Tyrion. Um, but I just I love it. Yeah. Oh, God, I love yeah. Tyrion. He's my oh, favorite he's character wonderful. from Game of Thrones. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Mm-hmm. So, okay, that was fun. I'm like, I'm going to think of mine. Yeah, for next week, I'll do it as homework. So, yeah. So, speaking no, of like stories it. you love, we're closing yes. out the show with a love what you love. What stories are you loving right now, baby? You know what's funny is that I've been I've been reading a lot and I've been engaging with a lot of stuff. Um, but one of the things, and it's not really like a fictional story or anything. It's just something I've been really enjoying lately is the Office Ladies podcast, um, which is Jenna Fisher and Angela Kinsey who were on the American version of The Office, the mm-hmm. TV show, um, are watching each episode and they're going through and they're telling little stories from behind the scenes, little oh, things fun. that happen. <laughs> they tell the story of how they became best friends during the basketball episode because they were stuck sitting on this bench cheering for this fake basketball game for like an entire you know couple of days of shooting and they just that's how they became best friends and they're still best friends to this day um and so there's something about um like real life stories Mm -hmm. Stories are always fun. I love hearing people tell stories, you know, Um, and they tell every they tell the stories of like what people were doing behind the scenes during the shooting of any particular scene or any particular thing or what was happening. And um, and I'm actually really just enjoying that. It is it is an incredibly comforting podcast for me. Right now, there's something about The Office that is just comforting for me, and I don't know why, because it's also really awkward and uncomfortable and cringy. Um, but uh, but The Office, there is a genuine goodness to The Office, uh, a genuine, like, a well-meaning kind of thing. I don't know. I don't know. Hmm. Interesting. I don't know. I like oh. it. I'm enjoying oh, that does it. So what like about fun. you? What are you enjoying? So I just finished a fabulous book called The Library of the Unwritten by A.J. Hackwith. Mm-hmm. And it's the first of uh, what looks like, like to be a series. The second one will mm-hmm. come out in October and I cannot wait. But it so when I read the summary, I was like, oh, she wrote this book for me. Thank you very Aww. much, author. Uh, so let me just put it to you this way. It is a library in hell mm-hmm. of books that have not yet been finished. Or books. Oh my goodness. Books that are going to become but have not yet been written. Wow. And so in the librarian, like the librarian of hell, Lonnie, just, oh, oh my, my God. God. That was it's, made specifically to delight you. Right. Um, but it is so smart. And it, mm-hmm. it, you know, you talk about narrative transport and like, some of these characters sneak out of their books and wreak all kind mm-hmm. of havoc. Um, but the relationship between a writer and their story is very Aww. important and like explored in really deep, meaningful ways. Um, it's fast paced. It's fun. It was. Oh, yeah. I enjoyed it. It was great. It was great. So I love it. Yeah, I love the meta of books about books. Like, there's just yeah, something right. about that. Yeah, the delight. Oh, my God. I can see why that would absolutely delight you. Yep. So very highly recommended. Awesome. 
All right, to join in the discussion on Twitter, follow me at Lonnie Diane Rich and Kelly at Dr. Kelly Jones and use the hashtag HowStoryWorks. HowStoryWorks and everything Chipperish Media produces is made free and ad-free by the generous patrons who support us to the tune of a dollar a month or more and make it possible for us to write fairy godmother stories. <laughs> Visit patreon.com slash chipperish to find out more. This episode of How Story Works was brought to you by the Chipperish Media producers who support us on Patreon at the power producer level. These people are the reason why How Story Works is coming to you free and ad-free right now. So thank you to our March producers, Sarah, Shelley, Kristen, Kevin, Alice, Erica, Abigail, West, and Jonathan. And this week's special message for our power producers, talent borrows, genius steals. That's Oscar Wilde. Don't blame Lonnie. Thank you. Other ways to show your support, write a great review on Apple Podcasts, tell your friends about the show, or introduce yourself to someone as Philippa Orpington of the Cincinnati Orpingtons. Trust me, it'll be fun. (laughs) My God, if you do that, please write to us and tell us how it goes. (laughs) We will be back next time to talk about character roles. Until then, girl, you don't need a man to love you. Love yourself. Be your own one true love. <laughs>